Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a look at law, civics, and government from a biblical perspective. I'm your host, Eric Ruppold, and I thank you for joining me this morning. If you could please share the show, give the thumbs up, stars, reviews, all those things, send it to a friend, all of that helps to get the show out to more people. And keep in mind, I'm also part of the Christian podcast community. You can find uh, episodes of other podcasts on that community by going to podcast.strivingforeternity.org. And there you can find dozens of podcasts that uh, I am part of, essentially, as this team, this community of podcasts. Some uh, really good ones out there. I highly recommend you take a look at that, please. All right, with that, we're going to continue our study of Lex Rex, uh, which is The Law is King. But first... We need to tackle our law of the day. So if you want to follow along in your copy of the scriptures, we'll be looking at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 35 through 37, and a parallel passage in Deuteronomy. And that parallel passage is Deuteronomy 25, 13 through 16. So here's the uh, passage from Leviticus. You shall do no wrong in judgment, in measures of length or weight or quantity. You shall have just balances, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. I am the Lord. Now here's the passage from, the parallel passage from Deuteronomy. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have, a full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Before we look at application for those laws, there are some proverbs that actually support them that I wanted to share with you because I think they also uh, reinforce a few things. In Proverbs 11.1, 1, it says this, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And in Proverbs 16.11, it says this, A just balance and scales are the Lord's. All the weights in the bag are his work. And then Proverbs 20.10 says, Unequal weights and unequal measures are both alike an abomination to the Lord. So, what is the context here? Well, all trading and construction, any kind of uh, sales, purchasing, all of that requires some standard of measurement. Now, in a bartering system... In the ancient world, it wouldn't be too hard to do something like, I will trade you one orange for one apple. Both objects are of similar size, uh, they're of similar kind, so it's much easier to do the trade. Now, the question becomes, what if you want to trade salt, flour, and sugar? How do you do that? How do you do it fairly and uh, equally? What about construction of a building? Or measuring property lines, if you wanted to purchase a property and the person says you get this much land for this much price, how do you measure out the portion of land that you get? Now, in those days, there was no central government that enforced the standards. So you, as an individual, would go to the market and the seller would have his scales out on the table or the booth or whatever for the transaction, for any transactions that were done. And you you could bring your own weights, perhaps, carry them in your bag. Um, you probably would. Or you would trust the ones that were used by the seller. Okay, And if you want to purchase something, you would bring the object to the seller. 
uh, he would put that on the scale and maybe you would offer some other object and they would weigh it out a little bit. Or if you just wanted to buy with gold or silver of some, some kind of currency, if you wanted to buy uh, some flour, he would put his five-pound rock or stone, whatever, on one side of the scale and then measure out five pounds of flour and put that on the other side of the scale. And when they're balanced out, there you go. You got five pounds of flour and then you pay him and that's that. Now, the problem is that false weights and false measures were a way of stealing. It was very common back then. Uh, you let's say you had a stone that you would li- yeah you would label as your five pound stone. You know maybe you would you would probably chisel into it a some some kind of uh, indication that it was your five pound stone, and you would have a whole bunch of stones in your bag. You know the one pound, the five pound, and so on. Now let's say that your five pound stone only actually weighed four and a half pounds. How would anyone know? Okay, they. They're trusting you. And what you would do is you would put the four and a half pound stone on the scale and then you would measure out equal amount of flour and the buyer is paying you for five pounds of flour, but you're giving him four and a half, okay? And there's no way for, unless that individual brings his own stones and you allow him to use uh, his stones on your scales, uh, it's probably not going to catch it. And so you would just be cheating and stealing from your neighbor. The same thing could be done with buying land. If uh, if someone measures a different way than someone else, or it's supposed to be a cubit, but it's not really a cubit, or, you know, a hundred cubits, or a thousand cubits, or whatever the case may be, uh, you're paying for less than what you're getting. And and the, the seller can keep more for himself and get some kind of economic advantage out of it. Now, God took this extremely seriously. We see in the Proverbs, we see in the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus, uh, the the word abomination is used extensively, and it was uh, considered an abomination to steal from others, particularly in this way. It would be and it'd be tempting though for Israel to do this for several reasons. Um, aside from being sinful human beings, which always want to get advantage when we can. Israel might be tempted to cheat Egypt. Well, Egypt had enslaved them in the past, so as Israel enters the land and lives in their lives in their uh, their new land and their new homeland, uh, what if an Egyptian comes for trading? Now, that Israelite might be tempted to cheat them, and maybe he could justify it by saying, "Well, I my my family and I were slaves in Egypt, so I don't really need to treat him fairly." So there'd be that temptation. You can also have the temptation of cheating an enemy or a foreigner. So there's always going to be aliens and strangers and sojourners in the area. And those individuals are at a disadvantage. Perhaps they don't know the language or the customs or the culture. And it's easy for the natives to take advantage of them. Okay, And that would be a temptation um, that Israel would have faced. But either way, God considered it both a sin and a crime. So it was a sin, certainly, uh, not all sins are crimes, of course, but it, this this was a sin and a crime. It was a sin to steal, and even if you didn't get caught, God was going to judge you. He even says that uh, to avoid doing this kind of uh, stealing in order to live long in the land, which is interesting. Uh, certainly, God had very strong opinions about this, and those who practiced such behavior were on a fast track of getting removed from the land, getting judged uh, by God. 
but if, it would be a crime as well, and if someone were caught, they would have to follow the restitution of other laws, which we uh, have looked at in the past, and we'll look at again in the future. Now, I mentioned before that God, st- that God says, uh, quote, that your days may be long in the land, and if you remember, that is similar language found in the fifth commandment of honoring one's father and mother, that your days may be long in the land. So, equal weights and measures is very similar in importance and uh, honor and weight to uh, submitting to and obeying and honoring one's parents because they're very equal in the importance they have in society. If the society spurns authority and is rebellious and dishonors mother and father, that society is going to become destabilized and eventually lose its structure. And the same way with equal weights and measures, because no society can live very long or survive without having equal weights and measures. Uh, The reason for that is because it's all built on trust. Any kind of trading, any transaction, any marketing is all built on trust. When you buy something, you are trusting that you're getting what you paid for. And if the people of Israel were to just go around rampantly cheating each other and everybody else, the whole society will break down. No one's going to trade. No one's going to buy anything. There will be no buying, no selling, no trading, no economic transaction, no interaction. It will become everyone is a hermit and society itself will crumble. So truth and trustworthiness and honesty is the bedrock of any civilization. Now, when we take this to the modern era, it is interesting that there is an office of weights and measures in the United States. And their job is to make sure that equal weights and measures and standards are being used in, in all areas of life, transactions, uh, production, development, construction, things like that. And whenever you buy something at the store that says 16 ounces, how do you know that is true? Well, the Office of Weights and Measures has something to say about that, and their job is to make sure that the grocery store is not cheating, that the manufacturer is not lying, that when you pick up that that can of ingredients or that can of fruit or vegetables that says, you know, 12 ounces, 16 ounces, that you're actually paying for 16 ounces and or, you know, 12 ounces or something like that. Same thing with produce. When you go to the store and you want to get a bunch of bananas or a whole bunch of apples and oranges and you put them on the scale and it tells you, you know, it's this this many pounds, this many ounces of of produce and then you you hit the button and it prints out the uh, sticker that goes on your plastic bag. Well, how do you know that those scales are working properly? How do you know it's not false? That the scales aren't uh, are calibrated correctly. Well, you don't. You're trusting, you know, the grocery store, whether it's Food Lion, Giant, Wegmans, whatever. You're trusting that store to be honest and not to steal from you. Now, there are situations in our modern world where you can still get tricked. You get, you know, knockoff products. You know, you go overseas. Someone is selling a product that that they claim is a legitimate authentic, you know, I don't know, leather or pearl or Rolex watches or whatever, but but you're not getting that at all. And that's another example of a violation of this law because that person is trying to get more money from you than what is right. 
okay? You're not getting what you pay for. And so they, if they're trying to trick you and sell you some knockoff piece of clothing, they are violating the law against um, yeah, unequal weights and unequal measures. So, and, and of course, when you're at a when you're at another nation, when you're in a foreign nation, you are at a disadvantage. There's different currency, so its exchange rate could be a little a little off for you, and you're not really sure how it works. Uh, different values of items in that culture they value things differently, so they might they might try to uh, you know play up something that's really in, in their culture kind of common or kind of you know poor quality, but they're but they're telling you that this is wonderful. Everyone does it. This is how you know. This is how you would buy it. This is how much it costs, and you'd be a, you'd be a fool not to pay for it. Well, you know, maybe you're a fool for doing it. Maybe you're a fool for for believing the person. So it's important that nations take this seriously. And this this law has application in other more more indirect areas. So, for example, currency manipulation. China, both even currently and in the past, has devalued their currency in order to get favorable trade and exchange rates. And I don't want to go too far into economic theory here, but essentially their currency, which is called a renminbi, okay, which means the people's money, it's kind of ironic, kind of belongs to the government, not really the people, but that, never mind. Um, but we would also call it the, the yuan, okay, which is, which is um, another name for the currency. But essentially, keeping their currency devalued means that the exchange rate of dollars to yuan is not what it should be. And so let's say that the, uh, the exchange rate should be 1 to 5. 5 yuan for $1. Well, if they purposely drop it to 10, if they say, no, 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 it's, it's 10 yuan for $1, they can be they can be more competitive globally, competitive in producing cheap goods. Okay, so they want to be the manufacturer for many of the Western nations. And as long as the exchange rate is favorable, businesses, companies are going to want to go to China to make their product because it's more affordable. Okay, if their, if their currency grows in value, then um, it becomes more expensive for other companies and countries to buy from China. So there is an advantage for China in keeping their currency low. Uh, so they don't want the currency to go uh, to increase in value too much because then other cheap labor can compete with them as producers of exported goods. And, and what it does is it keeps, it keeps the Chinese people employed, which is always a plus for the government, and it keeps the Western nations dependent upon Chinese manufacturing. And since the Chinese government is directly involved in the market and in control of most, if not all, of China's businesses, this helps the Chinese government as well. So purposeful manipulation of currency violates God's law because, again, you're cheating the other person. You're lying to them. You're saying that it's worth this when it's really not that at all. Sadly, our own country does it too. We don't really devalue our currency in the way that China does, but when we print money out of thin air, for example, in the recent pandemic, some of the bailouts and handouts, that was all done by money that didn't exist and never existed. So what does that mean? Well, when you just create money out of thin air, you are purposefully devaluing your currency. 
okay? Because you're, you're creating more money, but the same amount of goods and people exist. So the supply of money goes up. And so the value of each money goes down, all right? So supply and demand. And the money that you have today, and money, by the way, is a promise. Back in the old days, you could turn in that dollar for a specific amount of gold. Like it used to be that dollar bills, paper money, uh, represented gold, represented some um, precious metal of some kind, precious commodity. So now it just represents itself. It represents nothing. It's it's by faith alone that the uh, that the money has value. But either way, it devalues itself when it gets printed in vast quantities or created out of thin air. And so when you get a whole bunch of money from the government, and then if that government prints a whole bunch of money after that, they've just cheated you because they've, they've made one promise to you. They said, well, here's some money, and the money is a promise uh, of some worth or value, but tomorrow it won't have that value at all because we're going to print a whole bunch more. So the money you have today is not worth the same tomorrow. Now, it'd be different if it was done accidentally, accidental inflation. But if it's done on purpose for some momentary benefit or advantage, it is a form of theft. And the ancient governments did this. I mean, every government does this. But the ancient governments did this too. So, for example, in Rome, in the Roman Empire, they would devalue their currency by having less percentage of gold in the coins. So you just, all you do is take out some of the gold when you mint coins and put in some other cheaper metal like copper or something like that. So instead of the gold, instead of the coin being, I don't know, 80% gold, you made it 50% gold, but you kept it the same value. It's still a, a denarius or whatever. So that's a form of cheating. It's, it's to avoid fulfilling a promise that you made because every transaction in a way is a promise. I promise to give you five pounds of flour. You promise to give me $5 and those $5 I expect that when I get that $5, then I can go the next day and buy something of $5 value. But if I take that $5 from you in exchange for flour, and then tomorrow that $5 only can purchase $1 worth of goods, I've just been cheated. Okay, And if you devalue the currency, that's what happens. So all of it, uh, I would say, is a violation of unequal weights, unequal measures. That's an important law, one that has very great application to today. Uh, but let's move on now to Lex Rex. Again, for those of you just tuning in, Lex Rex is the law is the king, written by Samuel Rutherford in the 1600s in England. And it's a essentially a precursor or great influencer, if you will, on the American Revolution, American Founding Fathers, the War for Independence. But what we're going, what we're doing is going through each chapter, uh, basically two chapters a week or so. Uh, each chapter is a question, and it, they're fairly short. So we're going to begin today on chapter eight. And chapter eight asks this question: Are rulers empowered conditionally or absolutely? And is there a covenant binding rulers and their people? So, in another, put it another way: When governments are formed, do they get absolute power or not? Is their power conditional, or is it absolute? So to begin this chapter, Rutherford gives a couple examples from Scripture. The first being the anointing of King David in Israel. If you go to 2 Samuel 5, it says in verse 3, 
So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. And then again, in 2 Kings 11, there's another example where uh, Jehoiada is made king through, through a covenant. And here's what 2 Kings 11:17 says, And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. So these passages, particularly the Second Kings 11 passage, is an example of how covenants are mutual and they're not forced. They bind the responsible parties to each other before God. And he says this, he says uh, in chapter 8, quote, to claim that the people are responsible to be obedient to the ruler without placing a reciprocal obligation on the ruler to rule in the best interest of the people is absurd, end quote. And to give further evidence for the validity of covenants or the existence of a covenant between the king and the people, uh, we look at 1 Samuel chapter 12, and in that section, this is Samuel's farewell address, he says in verse 24 and 25, he says this, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So, the curses of the covenant were applicable to both the king and the people. If the people sinned, the king was obligated to correct and guide them. And But if he didn't, then he would be swept away as well. And if the king sinned, the people were to hold him accountable. But if they didn't, then again, the king and the people would be swept away through their wickedness and their disobedience to the Lord. So all these examples go to show that there is a covenant that exists between the ruler and the people, even though certainly King David was anointed by, by God through Samuel, the people still came together and anointed him. And in the case of Jehoiada, you have an explicit example of two covenants being formed. The first covenant is between God, the king, and the people, and the second covenant is between the king and the people. And each party has their own responsibility and obligations. Rutherford goes on to show that the ruler is above each person as an individual, but the people are collectively above the ruler. And he says this, he says, quote, A ruler is a minister of God for the good of the subjects. He must take heed of the law of God and govern according to his will. As long as he fulfills this condition, he is to that extent made ruler. As far as he is a minister of evil to the people and does not rule according to God's commands, he is not appointed by God as ruler and king. Now, Rutherford makes it clear that this does not mean that when Saul or Jeroboam sinned, that they immediately stopped being rulers. Okay, so one sin does not unmake a ruler. Um, but what he is saying, though, is that the people never give a ruler the right to tyrannize them. The people don't give the ruler absolute power. But when a ruler becomes a tyrant, it is God's punishment for that people's sin. Okay? For their sin, God gave them over. And you see this pattern in the book of Judges. Whenever Israel sinned or went to idolatry, they were given into the hands of oppressive, tyrannical rulers, such as the Moabites and the Philistines. And that is a pattern we see throughout human history. It's not just for Israel, but 
That is part of what it means to become a slave to sin. You eventually become a slave to tyrants. Now, he gives the example in his book of King David and King Solomon. He says this, quote, One or two isolated acts of tyranny do not strip a ruler of the sovereign powers given by God and the people. To say otherwise would be absurd, end quote. He goes on to describe later in chapter 8 that to annul the covenant, the ruler would have to commit such a breach that if the people had known that he would have done that, they would never have made him king. Now, when a person becomes a tyrant, how do they get removed? Well, he'll spend more on that uh, in later chapters, but he does say that it does come down to the consent of the people because the people willingly covenant with the king and the king has an obligation to serve the people well and they have an obligation to obey as long as he's not tyrannizing them. But when he does breach covenant, how is he removed? Well, it, it's through the people and the representatives. But he says this, Rutherford says this, this is, and this is important though, he says, quote, any tyrant stands as a de facto ruler as long as the people and, the, and their representatives who made him ruler do not revoke their grant, end quote. So quite simply, if someone becomes a tyrant and the people say nothing, they do nothing, they say nothing, they don't respond, they have, in effect, submitted themselves implicitly to that ruler. They have not revoked their um, giving of authority to him. So they are, in a way, complicit with it. They've given in. They've let it happen. They haven't done anything about it, and they get what they deserve. They get what they have tolerated and put in place. But at the end of the chapter, Rutherford simply says that people give rulers power conditionally. It's, not, it's never unconditional. It's never absolute power. He says this, quote, If the people were possessions, like the spoils of war, a ruler could no more sin against the people than he could sin against his money. And there were arguments going on during Rutherford's time period that the people were just subjects. The people were just possessions of the ruler. He owned them all. Well, if that's the case, then he could, he could not sin against them. It'd be like someone saying, oh, you're sinning against your money, or you're sinning against that chair. It's an object. You can't sin against an object like that. So, again, if the people were just possessions of the ruler, he could do whatever he wanted to them. But Rutherford goes to show that's not the case. Rulers do not have absolute power. There is no divine right of kings. People are not just pawns. They're not just subjects to the ruler. And he doesn't just give biblical examples. He looks in the ancient world. He says, talks about how King Darius of Persia was under oath to keep the tradition of the Medes and the Persians. So even, even the king of Persia couldn't just make a law or unmake a law uh, if it violated a previously made law of the Medes and the Persians. Um, and Rutherford gives the example of a ship's captain. If, if a group of people were to hire a captain of the ship to transport them safely across the ocean, and if instead the captain sells them into slavery, they may challenge that captain and replace him if they find out about it beforehand. So, you know, they made a, they made a covenant with that captain, with the, um, the pilot, to steer them in the right direction and to take care of them safely. And if he's going to be malicious and abuse the people, they have every right to replace him because he breached his contract with them, his covenant. So that is essentially chapter 8. So moving to chapter 9, 
The question is, are rulers greater than the people are? Now, we already, Rutherford already mentioned this a little bit earlier, how uh, the people collectively are greater than the ruler, but the ruler is greater than each individual person taken separately. And he's going to flesh that out a little bit more in this ch- in chapter 9. So he starts off by describing how all people are made in God's image, and rulers are appointed by the people to serve a particular purpose, namely to work for their good. So again, he uses the example of the captain of the ship. The captain of the ship is less valuable than the entire crew, passengers, and the ship itself, even though he's more important than any one person. And again, the elders of a church are less important than the entire church, who are the flock of Christ, even though in in that moment, the elder might have more authority and more importance, per se, than one individual person. And he also looks at the example of the human body. Um, The thumb is the strongest of the fingers, but it's not more important than the entire hand. And in the same way, a ruler might be the strongest and most important of any individual person, but not more important than the people as a whole. And he makes some important points here that kind of reinforce that. He says, a ruler is not a ruler without a people. Although, theoretically, people can exist without a ruler. That's not a problem. And he says that people are the cause and the ruler is the ends for their well-being. It's from the people that the rulers arise and the rulers arise for a purpose, which is to provide for the well-being and good of the people. And here's what he says, quote, The people appoint and create the ruler out of their necessity to preserve themselves from mutual violence, end quote. And he goes on to mention that the people can replace their rulers, and it, and it shouldn't be too difficult. Uh, he gives the example of the church. He says, If the church can dismiss its pastors and elders easily, How can the same not be true with the civil magistrate? I mean, right? I mean, if God appointed elders over the flock of Christ, but if those elders commit a breach of trust and engage in wickedness and sin, they can be replaced by the people. Why is is it not true for civil rulers? And he goes on to talk about how the people are not the ruler's slaves which he mentioned before, but he goes into more detail here. He says this, quote, The people cannot, by choice or by law of nature, relinquish all their liberty and rights to a ruler. So, again, the people don't have absolute power. So they don't have absolute power to give. They cannot give what they don't have. So they can't give it to the king. The king cannot get absolute power. Now, Rutherford points out that when a nation descends into slavery— It's under God's curse. That's why. Uh, Because the people have allowed it to happen, and they're not not resisting it. uh, They're not doing anything about it. And so God has given them over. They have submitted themselves to slavery, even though they don't really have the right to do that, and the king doesn't have the right to, to do that either. Now, Rutherford says that regardless of a the state of the people, They always have the right to advance a private person of their choice to the position of ruler and the responsibility to restrict his power. So basically, they always reserve the right to select a ruler and to bestow him with power uh, and and place certain restrictions upon that person. And so in this way, the foundation of power always resides with the people. Even though it's ordained by God, it it comes about through the people. 
Um, and he gives a couple of examples of this, how, how it makes sense logically. So, for example, if a ruler were taken prisoner by a foreign nation, well, the people still have the right to appoint a custodian or a steward or a temporary ruler to guide their nation. And, of course, at a ruler's death, the people can create a new regime with more or less power. And so, based on that, if the people were to actually give away all of their power when they made a ruler, then if that ruler died and had no successors, how could they have any more power to give to another ruler? At the end of the day, the ruler is an official and formal means that allows the people to lead a godly and peaceful life on earth. And Rutherford says this, he says, quote, It is the people who made him ruler under God for their good, end quote. And so if a ruler harms the people, the people are not breaking covenant when they take action to preserve themselves. Quite simply, the people cannot give rulers the authority to murder them, just as the people don't have the authority to commit suicide. Rutherford says this, he says, quote, God gives no moral power to do evil. The counties and towns cannot give the power to do evil because they have no such power from God, end quote. So, in a way, if a person cannot do evil on their own, they don't have the authority to command someone else to do it for them. You know, you can't get around God's law that way, okay? Because, you know, you can imagine someone saying, well, I, you know, I can't, I can't break the law. But here's what I'll do. I'll hire someone to do it. That way, I'm squeaky clean. No, no. You can't break the law, and you don't get to hire somebody else to break the law. You don't get to command somebody else to break the law. You don't have that authority. You are not allowed to do that. And so in the same way, the king doesn't have the authority to become a tyrant, uh, and the people don't have the authority to make him a tyrant. At the end of the day, in conclusion of these two chapters, um, the ruler is above his subjects as individuals, but he is inferior to his subjects when you look at them collectively, all right? Because he serves the whole nation, right? He might have individual people serving him, but he, as the ruler, serves the nation. So the nation is above him in that, in that way. So Rutherford ends the chapter by taking a look at Psalm 82.1, which was a psalm where uh, God is describing the judges of Israel as gods, lo lowercase g, little gods. Because in a, in a way... Civil authorities serve a godlike function as far as, you know, divvying out justice and punishing evildoers and pronouncing something good or evil and applying law. In a way, they do sit as a type of God, little God, uh, in their authority, in their office. And that's actually explicitly said in Psalm 82. Now, Rutherford says this to end his chapter. He says, quote, God is infinite. A ruler is not. God's will is law, not so the rulers. God is an end to himself. The ruler has no such capacity. A government official is a god only by virtue of office, and that is at the discretion of the people. End quote. In a way, what is he saying? He's saying that government is by the people, of the people, and for the people, under God. And that phrase should sound familiar. It's a phrase that was used by Abraham Lincoln, but it's also a phrase that was first coined by the Christian John Wycliffe in England in the 1300s. So 
just uh, that's very interesting and uh, I think a very useful piece of information there. So that'll end it for chapters eight and nine today. I hope that it was uh, useful to you. Again, I encourage you to pick up Lex Rex and read that book. It's not very long. It's less than 200 pages. Uh, It's a a very easy read. Each chapter is only a few pages long, Um, but I think there's so many rich gems of truth in it that um, all people, especially God's people, uh, need need to learn. So with that, till next time, take care and God bless.